This morning's scripture passage comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Trinity. Cool, am I on now? Can you hear me now? Cool. So as I, as I was saying... We are starting a new series on, in Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians. It was a book that was written um, likely in the first century, in the, in, in the 50s, uh, not too long after Jesus was, uh, was crucified and then raised to life. Uh, Colossae was a city. Uh, it doesn't really exist anymore. It was destroyed in the 12th century. Um, but the site currently, uh, it exists near a small town in southwest Turkey, modern-day Turkey, called Hanaz. Uh, we just celebrated Easter, as Pastor Eric was mentioning. And the historical claim of Easter is that 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, after being put to death at the hands of the religious and civil authorities in his day, three days after he was put to death, came alive again. Uh, he walked out of his tomb, he changed the course of human history, and he is now reigning as king of the world. And Paul, who was an early follower of Jesus, uh, who lived during the time that all these events actually took place, he's writing this letter to explain why all of that matters, uh, why it matters. He's saying, look, Christianity is good news. Another word for that is, is gospel. It's good news, and it matters. It matters not only for your personal life, but also for your family, uh, your relationships, your work, your culture, and the entire cosmos. Uh, Jesus matters. He matters for all of it. And so that's where Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, is going to take us. It's going to take us to the very heart, the very center of ultimate reality, and then it's going to take us all the way into the nitty-gritty of our lived experience in 21st century uh, Orange County. But first, Paul has to start with the basics. He starts with the basics. He goes back to the basics of the gospel, the good news. And so this morning, right from the start, I want us to see that Paul is really showing us three things about the gospel uh, three things about the gospel this morning. He tells us first that the gospel is something for our mind. The gospel is something for our mind. It's also something for our life. And then third, it's something for our heart. 
So the gospel is something for our mind, something for our life, and something for our heart. The gospel is something for our mind. It's something for your mind. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. Uh, Paul, look how Paul describes the gospel in verse 5. He says, it's the word of truth. The gospel is truth. It's something for your mind. I want to show you how radically offensive this was in Paul's day. It was radically offensive. A statement like this would have been, see, would have been perceived and seen as extremely narrow, bigoted, and intolerant. See, the culture of the first century, the way things were in the first century in Paul's day uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, it, that culture was a, an incredibly pluralistic culture. It was also very inclusive. People were encouraged to dabble in multiple forms of spirituality and religion, everything from emperor and empire and nationalistic worship, all the way down to a variety of cultic uh, religious practices. Everything was permissible. Everything except intolerance. See, you were allowed to belong to and believe and behave in any way that you wanted, as long as you didn't claim that your truth was superior or absolute. So do you see the problem? Do you understand the dilemma here of what these early followers of Jesus were facing? See, they were, they were claiming that they were following a Jesus who came as a spiritual teacher who didn't merely claim to know the truth or point to the truth, he actually claimed that he was the truth. Jesus made that extraordinary and unique claim that there was no other way to God, there was no other way to the divine except through him. That's exclusive, that's absolute. It's a claim to superiority. Uh, in 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary, some of you may know this, but um, the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, they, they have a word for the year every year. And in 2016, their word for the year was post-truth. And in fact, the Washington Post, uh, in response to that news, declared, quote, truth is dead, facts are passe. What matters most is not objective facts, but appeals to emotion and personal belief. Now, it's a long story, uh, and I don't have the time to get into all, and let's face it, most of us would probably be bored to get into all the, the, the history of the philosophical Western tradition. It's, it's a long story as to how we got to a post-truth culture. Um, a lot of it goes back to, might be credited to sort of the brilliant, really brilliant philosophy of uh, a man by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche, who lived toward the end of the 19th century. But what it means for you and I that we live in a post-truth culture, 2018, is this. We're living in a time that is not all that different from the first century. Perhaps you've heard statements like this, or maybe perhaps you've even thought this way. It's arrogant to say that your religion is superior to other religions. It's narrow to claim exclusivity, perhaps even dangerous. And to live as if your path is superior and try to convert people to it, 
uh, that works against social peace and social good. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound familiar to our lived experience in 2018? Haven't you had those conversations? Perhaps you've thought that way. This is precisely where the Colossian Christians found themselves. Let me show you, through Paul's letter, why being post-truth is not only unworkable, it's also it's undesirable, it's unwanted. It's unworkable and it's unwanted. Let me, let me suggest why it's unworkable. A post-truth life, a post-truth culture is unworkable. Imagine living a life in which everyone practiced post-truth lifestyles. Your employer gives you a call the night before and says, we really need you in at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. There's an important meeting that's going to happen. And you say, okay, I'll be there. Except you won't because you're living in a post-truth world and a post-truth culture and living a post-truth lifestyle. Uh, Society would literally fragment and break down and become obsolete. Culture itself would no longer exist. We're grappling with this as as parents right now, teaching our oldest about about honesty, about truth. And some of you who are, who are parents or have been parents um, maybe can resonate with that. When your kid, uh, when your child begins saying things that aren't exactly true to you, it hurts. It, it interrupts and distorts the relationship. Family, relationships, society cannot function without truth, without some sort of basic facts. Further, uh, what does it mean to suggest that we live, uh, that we should live in a post-truth world, that truth is dead and facts are passe? I don't mean to get too philosophical, but if if the statement is truth is dead and facts are passe, why should I believe you? Uh, so you're saying that all truth is dead except the truth that you just made that truth is dead and facts are passe. Doesn't that, doesn't that negate the claim that you just made? See, life and society cannot function apart from truth. It doesn't work. It's unworkable. But truth, living post-truth is also undesirable. You don't want it. Without truth, you don't know who you are. At a fundamental, ultimate level, you don't know who you are. You don't know why you exist. You don't know why you're here. What the point of your life should be where you should invest your work and your energy and your labor. You need truth. We all need truth to give our life meaning and purpose. So what kind of fundamental, ultimate, absolute truth do we need? We need a word of truth that I think does two things. One, that humbles us, and two, whose ultimate fundamental principle is sacrificial love. We need a truth, a word of truth that both humbles us and whose fundamental, ultimate, absolute principle is sacrificial love. The gospel gives us both. Let me show you. First, um, the gospel humbles us. It comes to us. The word of truth that that comes to you, that's what Paul says. Um, In verse 6, the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, It was preached to them by, in verse 8, Epaphras. 
it came from outside of you, outside of these Colossian Christians. It wasn't because of their intellect or their status or their education or their morality. It came to them. That's deeply humbling. But it's also a truth whose fundamental principle, whose fundamental absolute is sacrificial love. In verses, we, we didn't have this, it's not printed in your worship program, but later in the series, we're going to be looking at this poem. It really is what it is. It's kind of like a song that Paul writes in chapter 1 of Colossians. And the poem is fascinating. It makes this start, startlingly superior claim that Jesus is the creator of everything. He is the absolute. He's the supreme ruler of your life. He's the supreme ruler of the church, the nations, and the entire cosmos. That's exclusive. That's narrow. It's a claim to superiority. But it ends with the shocking claim that Jesus died on a cross. He gave up his power. He gave up his privilege and his position to die the death of a common criminal in order to bring healing to the entire world. It's the ultimate sacrifice. See, Christianity's fundamental truth is a man sacrificing himself, not just for his friends, but for his enemies. A man sacrificing himself not just for nice people, not just for good people, but for criminals, for morally corrupt people. What does that mean? Christians, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, let me make an application to you. If you're a Christian here today, and you hold to the word of truth, the gospel, don't you dare disdain other belief systems. Don't you dare view yourselves as superior. You have a gospel that humbles us, whose ultimate, absolute, fundamental principle is a man dying on a cross for people that did not believe or behave as he did we should be the most, the most radically humble people, people able to listen to what others believe, to how others behave. Because we have a man, we worship a man who died on a cross for his enemies. And if you're here this morning and you're maybe perhaps a, a skeptic of Christianity or maybe a, a, you come from a background or you're a practitioner of a, a, another belief system, uh, you grew up Buddhist or... Um, you are a follower of Muhammad. Thanks for being here. We want to welcome you. Uh, we are glad that you're here this morning. And let me extend an invitation to you. Christian orthodoxy, Christian truth, isn't going away. There's been a number of studies on this. Uh, there's remarkable evidence to suggest that Christianity will continue to play a remarkable role on the world stage as uh, places like China, and Latin and Central America and countries in Africa are seeing incredible growth in Christianity. They're seeing thousands of converts to Christianity. That's important to understand where the world is going. You need to understand Christianity. So please examine Christianity. Read books. Talk to pastors. We believe at Trinity that Christianity offers you Something that's not only a superior truth, but it's something that offers you unparalleled resources for making sense of your life, your work, our culture, society. 
and even suffering and death. And I'm asking you not to explore Christianity because it might add to uh, your current lifestyle or help you practice your pursuits better. In fact, in many cases, Christianity will only make your life more difficult. I'm asking you, I'm encouraging you to explore Christianity because it's true. Don't embrace it because it's helpful uh, or because it makes you a better person or is comforting to you. Embrace it because it's true. I was reminded this week of, a, of an interview that uh, famous, uh, I guess he's a pop star, I don't know, Bono uh, from U2 uh, gave, in which he, he basically says this. If you read any C.S. Lewis, uh, you'll, you'll notice the, the, the echo there. Uh, but Bono in this interview said, look, uh, Jesus doesn't let you treat him like Muhammad or, or Buddha or Confucius. Um, he's either... Uh, the person he claimed to be, God in the flesh, the one way to God, the one way to the divine, or he's a complete nutcase. And he says it's far-fetched. It, the idea that, that human history would have been changed, pivots on the claims of Jesus, on the life of Jesus. He says that's entirely far-fetched. So the question is, who is this Jesus? Who is this man? That's the question. That's the ultimate question. So the gospel is a word of truth. It's something for your mind. It's also something for your life. It's truth, but it's also power. It's a force. It's energy. That's what Paul says later in chapter 1. He says, by the gospel, uh, this gospel that energizes me, that works in me, it's a power that works in me, that allows me to do, be the person I am, do the work that I'm called to do. That's, that's what Paul's going to talk about later. See what he's saying in verse 6, though. He says that the gospel is a word of truth that's bearing fruit and increasing. It's growing. The gospel is something for your life. It's a kind of energy that God works in you. Specifically, it's something that brings change to your life. The gospel is something that brings change, that allows you to bear fruit and grow. What does that mean? And why should you want that power? Um... You want that power because aren't there areas in your life right now? You're sitting here at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. There are areas of your life right now where you're stressed out, where you're bearing a grudge, where you're anxious or angry. There's something in our life, there's something in my life that's either out of sync or out of whack, isn't it? Isn't there something right now in your life that's that's just not right? Get quiet with yourself for a moment and simply ask this. Where exactly am I experiencing agitation, unease, unrest, anxiety? Why is that there? It's precisely there that you need an application of the power of the gospel where you need to use the gospel, understand the gospel. Paul is saying that a fruit-filled life, a life of abundant character, of overflowing love, comes from the gospel. Are you lacking gentleness? The gospel gives it. Are you lacking or depleted on compassion? The gospel gives it. Do you feel like your life is devoid of joy or patience or courage? 
Paul's saying that it's not something that you try to work up in yourself. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing. It's something that the gospel does. What does that power look like in your life? What is, what is the power of, of a fruit-filled, increasing, growing life look like? Well, it's, it, it looks like two things. One, it's individual, it's personal, but it's also communal and corporate. It's individual. It looks like personal integrity. This is what Paul will go on to talk about in Colossians 3, that the kind of fruit that he's talking about, that the gospel produces, is one that's whole. It's a life of wholeness. It's a life of truth-telling and truth-speaking, a life of personal integrity, a life of peacemaking in your relationships, in your family, in the broader culture. It's a life of compassion-extending people. It's personal, but it's also communal. Look, Christianity changed the world. I was revisiting um, a phenomenal book, a fantastic book written by a historian and sociology, Rodney Stark, called The Rise of Christianity, in which he explores what made Christianity uh, take off in the first couple centuries and change the world. And this is what he said. This is what he argues. He says, early Christians had a remarkable concern and care for the poor a community in which all races and all ethnicities and all social classes were welcome, a place where women and slaves and children were given unheard of dignity, value, and worth. Children weren't seen as objects, but persons to be taught and loved. Women were given leadership roles and protection from abuse and harm. Slaves were given unparalleled rights and an identity outside of their work. Paul's going to talk about, he's going to explore all of this uh, later on in the letter. That's the kind of fruit that the gospel produces, world-changing fruit, amazing. Where does that power come from? Where does that power of the gospel come from? I grew up up a Christian, I grew up in the church, I grew up in in a Christian household, so let me share with you uh, what I believe is the default setting of probably most Christians, probably most of us in this room. Most of us today, most Christians today, think that the gospel is something that you believe once and then you move into something better or something more superior. The gospel, you believe it once, you get in by God's grace, but then it's up to you to maintain and grow through your obedience to biblical truth, to certain precepts or codes or rules. Not true. Christianity is something where the grace period never stops. The gospel is the gift that keeps on giving. The gospel is what rescues you and then progresses you. It's the tide that draws you into God's kingdom. It's the love, the grace, the approval that draws you into God's kingdom and then puts wind in your sails to set you cruising through the Christian life. How? How does that power operate in a person's life? It works like this, very simply. And this is what Paul is doing in Colossians. This is it. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. What do you see? You see someone who was strong, who was extraordinary, who was victorious, and since the gospel is true, because it's true, 
All of those things that characterize Jesus are now mine, are now yours. So I'm free to risk. I'm free to love. I'm free even to fail. This is how one writer puts it that I love. I come back to this over and over again. Because Jesus was strong for me, I'm free to be weak. Because Jesus won for me, I'm free to lose. Because Jesus was someone, I'm free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, I'm free to be ordinary. Because Jesus succeeded for me, I am free to fail. That's how this power of the gospel operates in your life. That there's nothing you can do to remove yourself from the Father's favor. And grace, once you're brought in, is the thing that propels you out. That's the power. That's something for your life. So the gospel is something for your mind, it's something for your life, and finally it's something for your heart. The gospel is something for your heart. I really have no sermon illustrations outside of Pixar movies uh, because I'm a dad and that's what I do is I watch Pixar. And uh, recently Katie and I had the experience of crying our eyes out um, to Coco, uh, the latest Pixar movie. We hadn't see, weren't able to see it in theaters, but we watched it um, on our, in our living room. And... Um, there's this profound scene. I'm not going to hopefully give anything away, but if I do, like you should have seen it already by now. So, um, but there's this profoundly moving scene in which Miguel, uh, the main character, he's a boy, um, he's, he's singing this song that he has learned from his great, great, great grandfather um, to his frail, uh, weak, helpless, uh, dying grandma, whose name is Coco, uh, his abuelita. And it's, it's a profoundly moving scene because as he's singing this song to his abuelita, uh, she begins, this frail woman, she is barely capable of moving or speaking. Uh, she begins to move. She begins to sing. Her heart is filled with this profound love of a father who she had been separated from. And that's, and that's merely through song. And at a deep, profound level, that is the gospel. It's a love song. It's a love story. Christianity is not about our performance. It's about grace. It's not a performance story. It's a grace story. It's not about our achievement. It's about our receivement. And I know that's not a word. Christianity is not advice. It's not morality. It's not a to-do list. It's good news. It's a story that you and I have been pulled into. The gospel is grace. See, Jesus didn't merely come to teach us or show us the way, but to be the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus lived the morally perfect and superior life that I should have lived. He died a horrific death on the cross to suffer the the just penalty for my sin so that I could be treated as he deserved. He was treated as I deserved. Death on the cross so that I could be treated as he deserved. And then the third day again, he was 
raised. He was vindicated to new life to give us hope, to give us expectation and longing. The gospel is hope. That's what Paul says. It's hope stored up in heaven for you. Some of you may have seen this quote several weeks ago. Um, the, uh, the well-known, beloved evangelist Billy Graham died, and a quote was surfacing that he had said earlier in his life and ministry. Uh, that He said this. He said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. That's incredible hope, friends. That's incredible hope. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be able to approach death and suffering the same way? I know I do. This week marked the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. How was it that such a great man, such a great prophet, was able to accomplish what he did, was able to remain courageous, relentlessly courageous in the face of injustice and hate? It was because of hope. Hope stored up in heaven. The gospel is hope stored up in heaven for you. That's what Paul says. It's secure. It's unshakable. You already have. You look, listen, you already have in Jesus the A plus on the report card. You already have on that performance evaluation exceeds expectations. So you can go into any job, any relationship, any situation and say, this is not determinative of my worth. This is not determinative of my significance, of my value. It's already yours in Jesus. It's already secure in Jesus. It's set. It's money in the bank that you can count on every single day of your life. We'll get here next week. I'll close with this. We'll get here next week. Um, But Paul says... This is what the gospel is. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. If everything that belongs to Jesus is now mine, then you, friend, are a beloved child. You're a beloved son, a beloved daughter of the Father in heaven. And he rejoices over you. He dances over you. One of my favorite scenes in any movie of all time, 1995, the classic, the classic film, profoundly moving, Babe, about the talking pig who thinks he's a sheepdog. And there's a scene in that movie, I don't know if you remember it, recall it, Farmer Hoggett, um, Babe has been out for all night in the cold and the rain and he's sick uh, and he's laying on this blanket in the house, muddy and depressed and sick. And Farmer Hoggett, who's kind of this stern Um, man never smiles much, uh, sort of doesn't really have a personality. He begins nursing babe with a bottle. And as he's nursing babe, he begins to sing over babe. Uh, And then he gets up and he begins to dance over babe. And there's this extraordinary scene of this farmer dancing over babe the pig, over this muddy, sickly pig. I love it. It's amazing. Did you know God dances over you? I'm not calling you a pig, but he dances over you. 
He rejoices over you. As we read in the call to worship, he covers you with joy. He's crazy about you. He's wild about you. You're his child. That is hope stored up in heaven for you. Bank on it every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a word of truth in a culture where we turn on the news and scroll through our timeline and don't know anymore what's true and what's fake, who's lying to us, who's manipulating us. Father, we thank you for giving us a word of truth. We need that. Our culture needs that, Father. Help us to be the kinds of people who can hold to the truth of the gospel in the path of humility, that we will be those who are quick to listen and slow to speak. Father, thank you that the word of truth, the gospel, is power, it's energy that works in us. So, Father, help us to go back to the gospel over and over again, a hundred times a day. Help us to look to Jesus, knowing that everything that belongs to him and is now ours, and may that bear fruit in our lives. And thank you for grace. Everlasting, unexhaustible grace. We thank you for that. And as we come to the table now, Father, remind us again, feed us again with the beauty and truth and goodness of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.